today more of the best from the global lane. Accused of being a CIA spy and terrorist, Pastor Andrew Brunson tells of his darkest moments in a Turkish prison. Cameras and facial recognition software, tracking Christians in China. God's hand on America. How divine intervention spared the USA from potential disaster. And Coca-Cola commercial, soft drink promotion or transgender advocacy. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. Accused of being a CIA spy and terrorist, missionary Andrew Brunson spent two years in a Turkish prison. We were among the first to interview him just after his release one year ago. Now he's back, sharing more about his prison experience and his recently released book, God's Hostage, a true story of persecution, imprisonment, and perseverance. Everyone remembers when you prayed for the president in the Oval Office. That was quite a moment. And you had an opportunity just recently uh, at the Values Voters Summit to pray for the president. And we want to play a clip of that right now. May President Trump not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears or lean on his own understanding, but may he recognize your prompting and move according to your guidance. I ask that you give the president supernatural discernment to know who is trustworthy and who is not. Bring into the light all deception and intrigue. Expose and reverse the plans of those who would harm President Trump and this nation. In the name of Jesus, I break off all voices and influence that do not come from you, Father God. May your truth and peace surround and reign in the White House. So how was that prayer this time compared to the one you did in the Oval Office. How was it different? Well, uh, they were both somewhat unexpected. They came up uh, suddenly for us. Uh, the first one was so surreal. Uh, 24 hours before I had been convicted of terrorism in a Turkish court and I thought they were gonna send me back to prison in spite of all the pressure, all the prayer that had poured in. I thought, okay, now, now I'm going back to prison. And instead, after being convicted, I was released and uh, allowed to race to the airport and get on an Air Force plane and come back to the States. And just a roller coaster, so surreal, that 24-hour period conviction to the White House. Now we're a year removed from that, and when we had the opportunity to pray for the president this time, we're just thinking, what we don't want to do any messaging in our, when we pray. Uh, uh, Noreen and I were thinking as we flew to Washington for that meeting, uh, what are the things that we are especially on our heart and that we think the president needs? And we prayed according to that. And we believe in impartation. We believe that, there, that, that there's power uh, in prayer. So I'm very glad to have the opportunity. Noreen, did you uh, have any say in that prayer? Because I, I think you had some notes written down yes. when you read it. Did, did you have any influence on that, or did he, did he pray anything? That, did he miss anything that you thought? We was went through cool? it together, but I had some things that I had been praying for him uh, or things that I pray in general. And so, yes, it was a, we worked together on it. We are a team. We do most things together, and we have for many years. Yeah. So it seemed like the president was very grateful for that prayer. It was a little different than the one in the Oval Office. This time I, w I was looking at his face as you were praying for him and it seemed like he was very appreciative. Uh, and then afterwards, of course, he gave you a big hug. Uh, what kind of relationship do you have with him? 
Well, uh, he says he knows me well and I'm his friend, but it's been a very quick, intense friendship, I would say. We don't have access to the White House as people think we do. Uh, it, uh, very occasionally we have had uh, some contact, but we pray for him. And he seemed touched and moved by it. Yes. So, yes. praise God. Our, our feeling about the president is that he has a big heart. And this is what we've seen, at least with us, is he just has a big heart. And he's open to public prayer. I mean, yes. prayer in the Oval Office, you praying for him there. Um, so, God has put you in a position to actually pray for the president and with the president. It's an astounding thing to us because, you know, we spent 25 years in a corner of Turkey and we haven't sought any of these kinds of opportunities. They've just come to us. Up next, how the prayers and presence of his loving wife made the difference during Pastor Andrew Brunson's imprisonment. Few Western missionaries have endured the hardships of prison, but Pastor Andrew Brunson did. He persevered through some dark times during a two-year imprisonment in Turkey. So where was God in his times of suffering? Brunson tells us he did not expect to experience what he calls the silence of God. I couldn't have imagined that I would break so thoroughly and so many times, <laughs> but I did. And you became angry at God, didn't you? I did. There are a number of reasons for that, and I can't go into all of them in the time we have. But uh, in many biographies that I had read, uh, uh, Christian heroes, people who are my heroes, they're so strong when they go through difficulty. And I expected that I would have a similar experience to the things I'd read about. My expectations were different. And I felt uh, the silence of God. The silence of God in what was was my darkest time. And so I was surprised at that. I expected an overwhelming sense of strength, even in difficulty, that I'd have joy, and that I'd feel grace, like a palpable sense of grace. And I did have grace, but I was mostly unaware of it. It was an unfelt grace. And so I felt at times betrayed, uh, forgotten by God, uh, or that he was trying to put me through difficulties just to toughen me up so that he could have a, you know, a tough missionary. And I just wanted the tenderness of God in, in these times. Uh, but that's not the end of the story. Uh, he brought me through, and there was a turning point. I would say the first month, uh, year or so was really a breaking time. And then the second year, there was a rebuilding process that he took me through. I want to ask you about that in a moment, but Noreen, uh, when he was in that mental state, uh, his darkest times, did you become worried about him? There were times that I was worried, yes, and um, there were a few weeks when I had to say, promise me that I'll see you next week. Promise me you won't do anything this week. Um, and. It wasn't like that the whole time, but there were a few times that were very low like that. What did you do to bring him out of that? In a prophetic word, somebody said, there were a lot of prayers going up, but yours were foremost for him. And that really touched me. That really touched me that God was, you know, that my prayers for him were somehow uh, very important. So I, I definitely was praying and speaking life over him, definitely. And your visits were generally limited to once a week, no more than an hour. During that very dark time, it was about 35 minutes that we would get. Mm -hmm. Yes. So what difference did that make for you 
Andrew. It made a huge difference. She was the only Christian I had contact with. Uh, I was in, uh, my cellmates were all very strong Muslims. And uh, so I was very isolated in my faith. And this is, this was probably the most difficult thing is that I didn't have someone who, a, a brother who could pray with me, who could encourage me, who could correct me when I had wrong thoughts. And so Noreen had to fulfill that function in, the, in that very compressed amount of time, very intense time that we'd have together and give me the encouragement that would then uh, fuel me for the next week. I wanted to say, I, I had all the, I struggled with suicide because I thought I don't, I, I just want to escape uh, the situation of despair and, and uh, anxiety, fear. And what really changed in, the, in this area, I thought I don't want to spend I don't want to die in a Turkish prison and spend the rest of my life just wasting away in isolation. But then in the second year especially, there was a turn toward uh, saying, God, I want to complete the assignment you have for me. You had mentioned you're very well aware of what other persecuted believers have gone through in their prison experience, their sufferings, and how strong they were, and you felt that you broke and you were weak at times. But I didn't measure up. Yes. That you didn't measure up. Yeah. So Andrew, what now? It's been a year. Can I say also, I've, read, I've also found out since then that some of them struggled more than we realize. And that many people in other countries, very few Westerners have been in prison for their faith. Uh, but in other countries also I've gone through, many of them have a, an experience similar to mine where there are, are rays of light, you know, times that, that, they, that God does something and they sense His presence but that much of the time they don't have that and they experience the silence of God. Christians in China say the persecution against them is the worst since Mao's cultural revolution. For 20 years now, VOM radio host Todd Nettleton has met with suffering Christians around the world. When it comes to China, he says life for Christians there is getting worse. In the last two years, the level of persecution in China, the level of control. Uh, one of our staff just recently met with Chinese Christians and he said that the Chinese government goal by the end of 2020 is to have 600 million active surveillance cameras in the country. Uh, they want to be able to identify and locate anyone within three seconds. Uh, so if you think about, you know, that's that's one camera for every two Chinese people. If you think about trying to deliver Bibles or you think about trying to meet secretly, uh, how are you gonna do that when the government is literally watching everything you do? Uh, but the Chinese Christians have an interesting philosophy of that one. I, I recently interviewed a pastor of a house church in China and he said, if the government is watching me, that's an opportunity for me to witness. And he said he challenges the people in his church, hey, make sure your testimony is consistent when you're at home, when you're out, when you're at work, make sure you're treating your wife with respect and with love because the government might be watching. And if they see inconsistency, they're gonna think the gospel is not real. But if they see you living it out every place you go, that's gonna be a witness to them. And so he, you know, he said, if the government's watching, well, then I'm gonna preach the gospel to them while they're watching. So that's the attitude of the Chinese Christians, but they are suffering. And, you know, there are pastors in prison, there are churches being closed down. It is, and the thing is, and it's different even from several years ago when you and I were there. When we were there, 
you know, it, you talked about, well, this area is really hard, but hey, look over here, it's pretty open. What's happening now is coming down from the federal government. It's not just regional. And Beijing is actually sending out trainers. We have heard reports from our contacts in China that there are trainers that are sent out from Beijing. They are training the local police in how to enforce the religious regulations. And the, the believers there know when they hear, hey, the, the trainers are here from Beijing, they know things are gonna get worse in, in their city for the church. Well, Todd Nettleton, we're out of time, but thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. It's always good to be with you. Negativity, it seems like it's everywhere in our culture today on social media, in Washington, D.C., and in Hollywood. It seems many of us forget God's blessings, not only in our lives, but also for our nation. Author, historian, and radio host Michael Medved is with us now to discuss his latest book, God's Hand on America, Divine Providence in the Modern Era. The overwhelming concern that I understand is the need for what Isaiah talks about, which is, come let us reason together. Americans aren't reasoning together, we're shouting at each other. And I think that people literally pray for a more constructive discourse. It's gotten to the point where people of Judeo-Christian faith seem to be having less of an influence on the society. Do you, do you see that? Yes. And why is unfortunately. that, Unfortunately, Well, partially because the younger generation seems to be so disillusioned. And I think that, that part of what they are reacting to is uh, the politicization of religion. In other words, and it's on the left as well as the right, it's on all sides. And I, I think that, that what we need more than before is not a religion that is fused by politics, but a politics that might be uh, fired by religion. And part of the religious uh, imperative for people who are Jews and people who are Christians is decent behavior, communication, respect for other people, and uh, a, a more constructive attitude, which was, by the way, typical of all of our great leaders. Our great leaders did not become great leaders through anger. They, they be, became great leaders through preaching basically hope and optimism. And leading. And leading. Yes. And you know, I, I, I think about President Reagan, and it's one of the things that I mentioned in my book, is uh, he displayed such exemplary optimism yes. and confidence when he was shot. Shot in the chest, bullet came within a quarter of an inch of his heart. And humor, too. And, and humor. And by the way, and six weeks later, another great human being, Pope John Paul II, also had that wound that should have killed him. And both men took the lesson that, that their lives had been given back to them by God for the purpose of defeating the evil of communism and advancing the cause of world peace. Well, that, that is the theme of your book. I mean, I read this, God's Hand on America. Thank you. It, it, it's amazing because uh, from a historical perspective, you go through some events in American history to some of our leaders uh, that have really changed, changed the country if it had not been for God's hand. Now, one in particular that I think of uh, has to do with FDR and Winston Churchill right. and how they had some close calls. Now, with FDR, he ended up with polio, and that could be seen by some people as a negative, but you turn it around and say, no, that was a positive thing. God's hand was on him, 
And he Tell us about that. that. Well, yeah. partially because he had a reputation of being sort of a lightweight, a playboy. One of the quotes about him, uh, Justice of the Supreme Court Oliver Wendell Holmes allegedly said that, uh, well, Roosevelt is a second-rate intellect, uh, but a first-rate temperament. And But the whole idea that he was a second-rate intellect, this changed. Um, the, the, the young man who was something of a playboy understood that life had been given back to him. And one of the things people forget about Franklin Roosevelt is that in 1933, literally two weeks before he was due to take the oath of office, bullets were fired at him, five of them, from 30 feet away, not yards, 30 feet away. He should have died. And it was a miraculous deliverance. I go into the details from this crazy guy who had been tracking him. And, uh, and if he had not been spared, John Nance Garner, who was an isolationist, who would not have played the same role in helping Britain survive Nazism, uh, would have been president. And in fact, do you remember that TV series that had Man in the High Tower? Yes. The yeah. High Castle, yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, very good the series. The book, which that is based on, uh, starts from the premise that Roosevelt wasn't spared from those bullets, which, by the way, came within months of Winston Churchill being run down by an automobile speeding along Fifth Avenue at 35 miles an hour. He was crossing the street, and this is in Christmas season of 1931. And he was run down. The, the wheels of the car stopped inches from his head. That's amazing. He was hospitalized for 10 days. Think of the turn of events if he Correct. had been killed there. And you even get into the cross in the Rocky Mountains that was discovered which, after which, the Civil War. Which, again, yes. no, nobody knows about and, and should, because that was the leading exhibit. The cover of the book is a painting by Thomas Moran which was the leading exhibit at the Philadelphia Centennial in 1876, which again renewed people's faith after the Civil War, that we've had this horrible carnage, but, but God is still looking out for the United States of America. And he put his seal on this 14,000-foot-high mountain, the Mount of the Holy Cross, which then was made into a national monument. Now, what happened to the Mount of the Holy Cross? There was an avalanche that removed the, 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 the signs of the cross, and a lot of people felt at the time that that was a sign from God that his blessing had been removed. I believe the blessing continues to this day if we merit it. It sure does, and we're very thankful for that, thankful for you. Thanks for being with us. Thank Michael. you so much, Good Gary. You. Thank you. God Great to see you. A new commercial for Sprite soft drinks is making the rounds on social media, and it has many people disgusted and outraged. It shows a girl wrapping her chest and transforming herself into a boy. It also shows a boy dressing up as a girl. Only most girls I know don't actually dress like that. But all of this, rainbow flags, gays, and lesbians, are depicted walking, I guess, to a gay pride rally as their proud parents look on. It happens to the tune of You'll Never Walk Alone. But folks, this is actually about more than gay pride. It's about transgender advocacy and indoctrination. Yes, encouraging parents to take pride in their children is positive. But Coke should stick to selling soft drinks. Instead of promoting Sprite, Coke is promoting a dangerous cultural feel-good ideology. And ads like this one, along with Hollywood's influence, 
through movies and television shows have caused a number of gender-confused children to skyrocket in America. Doctors are prescribing hormone treatments, puberty blockers, and surgeries as never before. Children are impressionable. All of this is helping to promote a sudden and dangerous cultural transformation. The idea that people, even minors, can change their gender at will, if it feels right at the time, do it. Doctors say they're now seeing a rise in cases of what they call rapid-onset gender dysphoria in American children, especially in young girls. Johns Hopkins psychiatrist Paul McHugh says what these kids really need is psychiatric care because no solid research backs pediatric transgender medicine. I'm of a great fear that uh, we're in the midst of a political rather than a medical enterprise here. Dr. McHugh says it's an enterprise that will likely backfire and cause hardship for patients who eventually realize what happened to them because they tried to change their sex. Some scarred and sterile transgenders are already calling for justice. Eventually the truth will out and uh, we'll know, and I think we'll know tragically, that many of these children have been cruelly treated. Advancing the idea that a child can become whatever or whomever they feel they are at any given time leads to gender confusion and serious lifetime consequences. Children, and that includes teens because they've not yet reached adulthood, are not emotionally mature enough to make lifetime decisions like changing their sex. Instead of encouraging American young people to change their gender, why not help them understand who they are, who they really are in God, the person God created them to be? Let's help them learn about the purpose He has for their lives. No matter how hard some people may try, hormones and surgeons cannot actually undo what God has done. They cannot actually change a person's biological sex. They may appear or feel like they're the other sex, but they aren't really. That's the real lie that they're living, because doctors aren't God. In Genesis 1.27, we're told, God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Got that? He created us. We are not the creators. And no matter how hard we may try to be God, we cannot. And we should not advance and embrace a culture that pretends otherwise. Well, that's it from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.